This is God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, to which God gave him uh, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, that's me, and blessed are those who hear, that's you, uh, for, uh, and keep what is written, for the time is near. And down to verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We'll leave the reading of God's Word there for a moment and uh, keep, keep hold of that because we'll be referring to bits and pieces as we go through. Now, uh, you may have seen uh, on our Facebook page or uh, on our other social media kind of thing that we're starting today uh, a new series uh, in the book of Revelation. We're not going to cover the whole book of Revelation, just the first three chapters. And the, the series is called Status Update. Uh, and the reason we've called it that is because... Uh, as we go on through chapters 2 and 3, we will see that Jesus, who we've just been hearing about, is, is walking among these seven churches in a place called Asia Minor, which is sort of modern-day Turkey, and he is giving his assessment of the quality and the health of those churches. And that's, that's why it's called Status Update. He's giving the status of these churches. And, and, and it's relevant for us today, just as it was for the seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, because we need to know what, what Jesus thinks of our church. And so that's why we're going to be, over the next seven weeks after this week, looking at each of those seven churches and, and hearing God's word and asking ourselves, how do we stack up in comparison to what Jesus has said about these ancient churches? So that's the, the pattern of the next seven weeks and to sort of take us over the summer um, here at Foundation Church. But 
today. Uh, We've just read Revelation 1, and we're going to be concentrating on the sort of introduction that it gives us, that prepares us for the next seven weeks. Because it's important to know what, what kind of God we're dealing with before we listen to his assessment of our, of our church. And so that's what we get in Revelation 1. In fact, in Revelation 1, we see four fundamental realities about the God who speaks. Four fundamental realities. And they are this. Number one, God is a God who speaks. Number two, God is a God who rules. Number three, God is a God who communes. And number four, God is a God who liberates. He speaks, he rules, he communes, and he liberates. So let's start with this fundamental reality about God. As we see in Revelation 1, number one, God is a God who speaks. And it all starts here, not just in the book of Revelation, but in our understanding of God, full stop. God is a God who, who speaks. And there's, we can, we, there's two, I would say, unavoidable principles in Christianity. Number one, that is, God exists. And number two, God speaks. Francis Schaeffer, um, who's a thinker, a theologian who's, who's now dead, uh, but he has a book entitled, He is There... And he is not silent. And that represents these two unavoidable principles of Christianity. He's there and he's not silent. And if you you go to the beginning of your Bibles and you open up at Genesis 1, verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God. Before anything had happened, before creation came into being, before anything like that, in the beginning, God. God exists. He he is the, the principal cause of all things. He is the ultimate cause of all existence. That might sound like a a religious thing to say that God exists before all things. But it's not simply a a religious assertion. There is a basic philosophical problem that not just Christians or religious people have to grapple with, but all people everywhere at all times have to grapple with this underlying basic problem. Why is there something rather than nothing? Nothing. Why is there something that exists rather than nothing? Where does existence come from? See, those who deny that God exists, or they're atheists, or they deny any existence of a divine being out there, have to give this answer, have to give an answer to the why of existence. Why is there something rather than nothing? Even if you are someone who subscribes to Big Bang cosmology, that in the beginning there was a huge explosion and from that everything in the universe came from. Even if you agree with that, and many people do, you have to ask, what caused that? Where did it come from? And if you are familiar with any of the the sort of uh, descriptions from the greatest minds in science, even in our modern day, uh, current scientists like Stephen Hawking, come up with these numerous and and, and quite honestly fanciful uh, reasons or explanations about how something came from nothing. And they will do all sorts of uh, intellectual backflips to try and explain that you don't need God for there to be something. But the Bible is clear. 
God is the ultimate cause of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it's not just that God exists. A few verses on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. God exists, but he speaks. He's not silent. A silent God would be pointless to all of creation, be pointless to us as people. At best, we would be agnostic in our, in our understanding, in our belief. But the God of the Bible, the God who presents himself in the Bible, he speaks, he, he is knowable. He communicates something of himself to his creation. And this is a remarkable fact that quite often, I and you probably and us, we, we overlook. We're so familiar with terminology about God and God's word and the Bible. But yet we, we, we often forget the, the remarkable, amazing fact that not only God exists, but that he speaks. That he speaks to people. That he communicates something of who he is, about what he's like, about how we can know him. And that's what we see in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 1. The revelation, it says, of Jesus Christ. The word revelation means the, the revealing of something which was previously hidden or which we, you'd never know unless it was revealed to you. Of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. We have here God, who is the originator of truth, speaking, giving his revelation to Jesus, who is to give it to John via an angelic messenger. And it describes it as the verse goes on, as the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. What we have here in Revelation are words that originate in, with God, affirmed in heaven, passed down directly through Jesus Christ to John, to us today who are reading these words. We have here the very words of God from heaven to us. And that means that when we come to study this passage, and let's face it, all of the Bible, we, there's, a, there's a great gravity behind what we're, what we're reading, what we See in front of us. It tells us something about this word, the character of it in, in these verses. Uh, it says, Jesus, uh, John, that is, uh, bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus. All that he saw is described in verse 3 as, as prophecy. All these words add up to sort of communicate something about this, this revelation from God to John. It's, it is trustworthy. It's witness. It's testimony. It's objective truth. Why am I telling you all this stuff? Why are we, we thinking about it in these terms? Well, it's important for the seven churches that are about to receive this message from God. They lived in the ancient Near East in the first century A.D., they lived in a world that had a lot of versions of, of what the truth is. They lived in, in, uh, under the, the polytheism of Rome, that is, multiple gods uh, that came along with the Roman Empire. They also lived in a time of uh, influenced by the paganism of older religions. In the ancient Near East, there are plenty of people just like us who are basically secular that saw religion as a way to make money. And so this was written to a group of Christians where there's lots of versions of the truth going on. They needed to know that God spoke and he spoke the truth. 
And nowhere is that more important and more critical than for us today in the, in the 21st century. We live in, in an age of, of secular tolerance. We're taught to tolerate all sorts of different versions of the truth. We're told from very early age that everybody has the truth. There are different forms of truth. We get to define our own truth. And that might sound good on the surface, but it's hard to avoid the ultimate conclusion that there is no such thing as final truth. If we all have our own version of the truth, then there is no truth. This idea of tolerance creates a huge problem for us. What if your version of the truth and my version of the truth collide? What if you're out there speaking to someone at work? Or if you're involved in a position of responsibility or authority and you have to make a decision on a certain issue or a certain policy? What if you say something is right or wrong but someone else completely disagrees with you? Whose version of the truth do you accept? What about certain behaviours in the world? Certain ethics or the way of living? If you're against it and someone else is for it, how do you decide who has the truth? If it comes to gender and sexuality or end-of-life issues or abortion, who has the truth and who does not? You can see if we start accepting versions of the truth, it's a recipe for chaos. Only one form of truth will prevail. One form of truth will set the pace in any society. One form of truth will define what is right and wrong, what views and behaviours are right and wrong for a society. But aside from the belief in a God who is there and a God who speaks, any society will end up following what we consider to be the natural law of evolution. Basically that the strong will eat the weak. Let me give you an example of, of what I'm talking about. Uh, International Justice Mission, you may or may not be familiar, familiar with them. They have this tagline. Rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. And they're a group of Christian lawyers, social workers, and other, other, other people um, who, who seek uh, justice to bring about justice, um, particularly in poor countries where they don't have strong uh, legal systems. And one of the issues that International Justice Mission deal with on quite a regular basis is this thing called land grabbing. Imagine a poor family in Uganda, in Africa. They have very few resources. They have a small amount of land. They have a, maybe a couple of cattle that work on their land. And, and say one day they're approached by a group of men who are, who are powerful, who are rich, who have influence. They may even have guns and weapons with them. And they seize the land off of the poor person. They rob the poor of their income, their place in the community, and then they take their, their land and make it their own. This is just one example, let's just say, of the strong eating the weak. It is those who have power and influence taking from those who do not. 
And that is the kind of thing we should expect in a society that does not believe that God speaks. That is the kind of behaviour and attitude that we should expect and no one can complain about that because it's just one version of truth against another. But we know when we hear a story like that and there are thousands of them from International Justice Mission, we know that that is intuitively wrong, that this is an injustice. You can't just go and take something that doesn't belong to you. We can only say that Because we have objective truth from a higher source that says that that is wrong. That is unjust behavior. God is there and God is not silent. If we didn't have that, if God did not speak, we have no grounds to say that what that that is is wrong. But what we have in the Bible is God's revelation of himself, God's communication of himself to us through the apostles and the prophets and other God-inspired authors. God in the Bible communicates, communicates clearly, truthfully, definitively to us. The Bible is more than just information. It is the very words of life from God who gives life. And that's why, as a church, a foundation, we are all about listening to God through the Word. Through the Bible, through, through, through reading and digesting and listening to the Bible taught and explained. But it's not just information. Look down at verse 3. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So it's not just about learning information and working out what is objectively true as God would have it. It is about living in response to that truth. And so that's why we are committed, as we said before, to expository preaching, opening up the Bible, understanding it, committing to live together the truth of what God says about himself and how we should live in response to him. First of all, God is a God who speaks. That is where it starts. But the second uh, fundamental um, truth that we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, number 2, God is a God who rules. He speaks, but he rules. Uh, the background here is we've got a whole bunch of churches, seven churches in, in Asia Minor. And the, the, the general tone of the message that Jesus gives to them is, is this. It is hold on. It is watch out. Because hardship is coming. Trials are coming your way. And so therefore, you've got to prepare yourselves by listening to me and responding to what I say. Persecutions and tribulations are going to come your way. John himself in verse 9 of chapter 1 says, I'm your brother and your partner in the tribulation. That is the hardship, the trials. He says, I'm here uh, on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's exiled there. He's been preaching and, and, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and the word of God. And somehow or other he has been expelled and exiled, we think, onto the island of Patmos. And, and, and he writes these messages to these churches to say, you know what, this is coming to you too. Trials and hardships are coming your way. You, he says, will be rejected by your family because of your faith in Jesus. You will lose your job because of your faith in In Jesus, you'll miss that promotion at work. You'll be marginalized in your community. You will even see civil authorities 
oppose and oppress you. You may even get thrown in prison. You may even lose your life because of the testimony of Jesus. That's what awaits you. And you need to know, says Jesus, through the Apostle John, you need to know that God is a God who rules. So it's into this situation that Jesus speaks and his message is this. I rule. God is a God who rules. There's two aspects to his rule and his reign. Number one, he's eternal. Number two, he's supreme. He is far beyond and he is high above. God is eternal. We see that in in verse 4b. The second half of verse 4 is from God, from him who is and who was and who is to come. In verse 8, God, uh, the Lord God, God the Father, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the first and the last. We see that again in verse 17. Jesus describes himself as the first and the last. Put all these things together. God is a God who rules because he he is eternal. He is over time. He's beyond time. Time is in his hands. His rule comes because he is eternal. But his rule comes also because he is supreme. Jesus is described in verse eight, uh, verse 5 as the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the king of kings on earth. He's the one in verse 6 who is given glory and dominion forever and ever. He's the one in verse 7 who's coming on the clouds. We were singing about that earlier. Evoking this Old Testament reminder from the book of Daniel about the one like a son of man coming before God, receiving glory and honor and power, ruling on God's behalf. We're showing that Jesus in verse 18 has the keys of death and Hades, that is hell, in his hands. He owns them. He's over them. He has the stars, which are the angels, in his hands. God is a God who rules. He's eternal and he's supreme. This is a theme that continues throughout the book of of Revelation. But again, it's not just important information. It is because he's addressing a group of people who need to know that God is a God who rules. They need to know so they won't lose heart when opposition comes. They won't cave in when opposition comes. They won't compromise under pressure. They won't despair. Contrary to the might and the rage and the insults and the mockery and the opposition that will come and is indeed with you, you need to know this, says the Apostle John. Jesus is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords. He reigns and he is supreme. Not those who oppose you, not the government, not the family who reject you. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. He is overall. And that is so easy to forget, especially when you are undergoing opposition for your faith. God is a God who reigns and not those who will bring you hardships. It brings you hope. It brings you hope because you realise when you see what God is revealing to you, that contrary to what it might seem on the surface, this isn't the end of the story. As the book of Revelation rolls on, the end of the story is, is painted before the church to see. There is a greater reality, there is a bigger story than your hardships and your opposition. There is a deep hope that comes from this. But there is also a hope 
that despite the hardships and the opposition and the, the mockery and the hurt that is caused because of your faith in Jesus Christ, justice shall come. God is a God who reigns. Ultimate justice for evil will come. This is important for us gathered here today to, to get the order right. Especially if you are experiencing or have experienced mockery because of your faith. If you're criticized for being a Christian, if you're unfairly called a bigot, if you're persecuted in some way, great or large, because of your Christian faith. If, you, if we are slandered as a church for our Christian teaching, our beliefs, our biblical position on social issues, that is important for us to get this into our minds. God is a God who reigns. Those whose families reject or resent them, those who lose jobs or miss out on promotions, God is a God who reigns. There is hope available because God reigns. We've seen God as a God who speaks. He's a God who reigns. Thirdly, he's a God who, who communes. I couldn't think of a better word than communes because it kind of, it's, a, it's a churchy word in some ways. He's a God who, who comes among and lives among his people. He's a God who communes with his people. The third fundamental truth from Revelation 1. We've seen that he is supreme and eternal. He's above all things. He's, he's greater and over time itself, which is a wonderful and rich truth. But let's face it, it is really of, of, of limited benefit to us if God is, is somehow aloof or unapproachable or out there. If God is a God who reigns, but he is inaccessible to us. But we see in these verses that God is a God who communes. He, he comes near. He is with us. And that is so helpful for the seven churches that Jesus later on addresses. We see in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Pointing to a, a future, the second coming of Christ. But it's even more than that. Look at verse 12. It says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, golden sash around his chest, white hair, eyes were like flaming fire, feet of burnished bronze refined in the flame, voice like the roar of many waters. This is the risen, resurrected and glorified Lord appearing among the lampstands, which we're later told are the seven churches themselves. Here we have Jesus among his churches. He's communing with his people. He's with them. He's intimately associated. Not over there, not up there, aloof and away. But he is with his people. He is supreme. He is eternal. But yet he is with his people. As we were thinking about at the beginning of our service, this, 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 this truth that God communes with his people is, is wonderful and it's comforting. But yet also it is an uneasy and a threatening truth at the same time. For those going through hardships, as some of these churches in Revelation are, it is good to know that God is a God who communes. It provides comfort, it provides strength and hope. But for some, the fact that God is a God who communes is not so good. He's coming, it says in verse 7, but yet many will not welcome him. In fact, some of the seven churches are heavily criticised by Jesus, and we'll see that in the, in the weeks to come. 
It is a fearsome thought that the God who exists, the God who speaks, the one who has a sharpness, says double-edged sword or two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, whose voice is like the sound of mighty torrents. This God is among you. That sharp two-edged sword we see later on is the thing that Jesus uses to slay his opponents with in chapter 19. The word of his mouth. See, when Jesus first came, the first Christmas, came as a baby, grew to be a man. Throughout his earthly ministry, he came and he spoke the truth. And it is speaking the truth that got him killed. Many people didn't want his truth and they nailed him to a cross. But the gospel teaches that he was raised up and glorified and exalted. And one day he will come again, still speaking the truth. But it says there in verse 7, when he comes back, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And many will wail on account of him. They will lament because he is there. There's many of us for whom Jesus coming and being among us and and communing with us is not good news. Jesus speaks the truth about God. He is the truth about God. Some will listen and accept the good news, the truth of the gospel. They will accept it with gladness and thankfulness. But other people, whether in this church or outside, don't want to know. They don't want to accept the truth of God in Christ Jesus. It's not a question of intelligence or being able to understand the words and understand the story. It goes deeper than that. People don't hear and accept because they don't want to hear and accept. Because they know that when you hear the truth of God, it demands a response. It demands something from you. And many people are unwilling to truly listen to the word of God in Christ Jesus. Because it requires too much of them, as they say. Many people in this country, in this city, are happy with the outward aspects of religion. They're happy to live a good moral life. But they don't want to know the truth. They may look like Christians and sound like Christians and go to church like Christians. And yet, they harden themselves to God's word, the truth. They hear week after week after week. But it will bounce off of their hearts and minds. They have learned to deflect the Holy Spirit, to deflect the Word of God from His role and and His work. But as we see here in Revelation 1, Jesus is coming. He is a God who communes with His people, who lives with His people. And He is here today, with us just now, by His Spirit, among His churches, but in His churches. And as we've just been thinking, this is a wonderful comfort, but at the same time a dangerous threat. But the good news is, and we'll see this week after week over the next seven weeks, is that every church, every heart, every mind, every person, whether commended or criticised, for every church, grace is available. Those who wander away, grace is available. Those who have hardened hearts to the gospel... Grace is available. And grace is available to us today and for those who hear and listen to God's word. Grace is available. We've seen that God is a God who speaks the truth. God is a God 
who rules over all. God is a God who communes, who lives with his people. Third, uh, fourthly and finally, God is a God who liberates. And it is this fundamental affirmation that underpins, really, and, and ties together the first three. God is a God who liberates, he frees, he releases his people. He is supreme and he is intimate. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He is far away and yet he is near. He is both at the same time. How can this be? How can God be with us and yet over us? How can he journey with his people in time and yet stand above time? How can a holy God live with an unholy people? The answer to that is found in verse 5 of our passage and really is the key to understanding this passage, this sermon and indeed the whole storyline of the Bible, how a holy God can live with an unholy people. It says there in verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. That is how God can be with us and be over us at the same time. And this is crucial. It is because he loves us. It is because of his love for his people that compels him to do this. There's no need, neediness in God. There's no great thing in us. But God liberates or frees his people because of his love. But it's not love alone. Because if by love we just mean a mere sentiment or a disposition towards someone else, it's not enough. Because the Bible says that we are slaves. We are entrapped by our sin. We are unable to respond freely to God's love. We are slaves to sin. We cannot respond to God's love. And as such, we prefer to love anything and anything, everything, instead of God. The God who exists, the God who speaks, the God who rules, the God who communes. We will find other things to love other than him. And this is sin. This is the definition of sin. Failing to live life in the proper order, in the proper response to the God who is, the God who speaks. We turn our hearts and our minds away to other lesser things. We fail to give him the honour of our lives. Because we sin, we are not free. Imagine a train that goes off the tracks. It could be a picture of what it is to sin. We think that we must leave the, the sort of restrictions and the tracks of life that God sets out for us. And we must get off the tracks in order to live life and to be free. But as a train comes off the tracks, it is anything but free. It is unstable. It is stuck. It can't go anywhere. And that describes something of the entrapment and what it's like to be a slave to sin. And, and we need to be released from that. We need to be liberated. We need a God who liberates the slaves. And this, my friends, is the, is the gospel. This is what Christ came to do in verse 5b. It says, he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He died and is alive forevermore. And the gospel is this. By his death on the cross, Jesus bought our forgiveness. We went from slaves to liberated people because of his death and his blood. Jesus freely gave himself so that we could be 
freed ourselves. He paid the cost of our freedom with his blood, with the immense and infinite value of his blood. And when we realize the immense value that he paid for our freedom, we ask ourselves, what part of our lives can we hold back from him? And hopefully when you understand the gospel and you see what he's done, you will answer, none. I can't hold back any of my life from Jesus because of the infinite value, infinite price that he has paid for my freedom. We say instead, he may rule over me and I welcome his reign in my life. He may speak truth to me and I shall humbly respond. Even if his word is difficult or painful for me to accept and to keep, I will listen. I will change my ways to serve him because of the infinite value of him freeing us by his blood. As a church, it tells us here, we are a kingdom of priests in verse 6 to God the Father. It's one of the descriptions of a, of a church. Kingdom of priests, speaking the truth, representing God to one another, one another to God. And so as a church, we must be open to the spirit of Jesus. We ourselves, as we respond to the gospel, must follow him wholeheartedly. We must listen to his voice intently. We must respond humbly. God is there and he is not silent. Let's pray.